listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We have a lot of text and not a lot of time, which is never a great combination, right? Uh, But as you're turning there, uh, I would love to just tell you how thankful I am for you, our church family. I'm going to move this, Keegan, because I'd like to walk, okay? Um, And uh, just how awesome of a summer it has been uh, to serve in this church. Uh, We've had camp, we've had mission trips, we've had Bible studies, we started a group. There's just been many, many things uh, in our church life that have been going on, but I personally, I started school. I sent my kindergartner, my oldest to kindergarten, and, you know, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, kicking and screaming and crying and denial. Um, I'm doing a lot better this week. Um, She's been great, okay? It's just me. I was ugly crying, you know, like, like, don't look at me type crying. Uh, but I'm a lot better uh, this week, uh, and it has been such, such a uh, great, great summer. I'm excited to where we're going in the fall with the Joshua Project and with discipleship. Uh, there's just so many things in our church family that uh, you need to be a part of, uh, and uh, it's not just uh, for the glory of First Baptist Church of Ann Austin, it's for the glory of the Lord. Uh, and the Lord has, has uh, blessed us, has provided for us in ways, in a plan that we could never come up with. You know what I mean? Uh, and so 1 Corinthians 15, I'm a, there's a lot of text here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this up. Uh, but I, I want to tell you about in 2016, there was a Pew Research study done. And there was a shift that recognizes a shift in the thinking of the American people. And for the first time since the middle of the 20th century, half of Americans said that their children would grow up to be worse off than people are right now. That was in 2006, and you know, things have gotten a lot better since 2006. Just kidding. Uh, but 2019 rolls around, and a second study is done. And the majority of people in the U.S., we're reporting that they were on a broad scale, if I could use this term, pessimistic, okay? Politically, pessimistic. Religion, pessimistic. Heck, even their social security, nope, pessimistic. And we could talk about these stats. We could look at them and say, okay, what, what are they, you know, let's go deeper. Who's being pulled and all that stuff. But one of the things I want you to take away from this is that underneath the buffet of social crises that are affecting our culture, are affecting our nation, we have things like the mental health crisis. People are scared and full of anxiety and depressed. That's real. We have things like the sexual revolution that is invading our world. We have things like political polarization, abuse, the the rise of pornography, You have all these issues facing our our culture, and it's very easy to look at these things and go, yep, things are going to get a lot worse. And I would say that underneath all of these things, there's one crisis that I think the, the Christian people are struggling with, and that's a crisis of hope. Because the Bible speaks of a time when death and sin and suffering will be no more. And if you know this text, at all today, 
you know that this text is historically called the resurrection text. And we're going to see explicitly that uh, the evidence for the resurrection, as well as Paul's answer for those who are denying the resurrection. But I want to turn your attention to one verse in particular, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. You can look at it in your, in your text, but I think we have it on the It says that if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. We should be pitied more than anyone. Let let me come out of the gate swinging a little bit this morning, okay? Let me be very clear. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, you wasted your gas this morning. You got your kids ready. You probably yelled at them going out the door saying we're late. Maybe that's just my house. You drove here. You just sang songs all to a dead guy. That means nothing. And we are a people to be pitied if Christ did not raise. But I have some really, really good news for you. Because the sermon's not over. We're not ending here. Christ rose from the dead. And that is news that should be paradigm shifting, that that should shape how you view yesterday, today, tomorrow, and eternity. Christ has risen from the dead. Not only did he rise from the dead, he's coming back again to destroy death forever, and he's taking you with him to enjoy him forever. Death doesn't win, Jesus does. In the spirit of verse 1, in chapter 15, I want to turn your attention there. He says these words, I want to make clear the gospel to you. I want to remind you of the gospel, and that is my call this morning. I want to make clear the gospel of salvation, the full salvation for you. And then I want to point to some practical applications towards the end. But let's get the lay of the land a little bit of where we are. First Corinthians is a big, thick, 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 thick of issues. Okay, I feel like we've been in this sermon. It's been so good. I've loved this series, but I feel like we've been in it since 2017. I don't know about y'all. And, and, and you, First Corinthians was written uh, to a church with a lot of problems. And from the beginning, if you remember way back in chapter 1, Paul addresses the divisions of what? Church leaders. Remember that? And then he goes from there and he covers pride, he covers incest, he covers lawsuits, sexual morality, marriage, food to idols, head coverings, the Lord's Supper, the spiritual gifts, and church order. You got all that? That's how much he covers. And here's the problem. We're still arguing about this stuff today. And so in chapter 15, Paul is addressing yet another division, most likely from a Christian sect that denied the resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, but any resurrection, like the grave, like once you go dark, it's just dark forever. But I, often, so many times, we can get, lot, we can get uh, so focused on tongues and spiritual gifts and women in the church and church order and sexual morality that we can miss the forest for a tree. Because I want to remind you, or what this book, not just verse, what this book is about. If you look in chapter 1 in verse 10, Paul says this, 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. The purpose of this book is unity. And this book gives answers to many of the church divisions, but in a much larger sense, this book is how the gospel of Jesus Christ requires the church to to mature in purity and unity. And here's what I'm going to argue today, which leads to true worship. When we have division in the church, when we have weeds, when we have all these different opinions that don't align underneath the gospel, what is most at stake is the worship of our God. And so Paul is coming in and saying, listen, here is what I want you to do. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to put you some order. I'm going to put you in some order. But here's what it leads to, worship. So notice the bookends of this letter, right? You have chapter 1, which stresses the, uh, that Christ died on the cross, right? 18, verses 18 through 22, while alluding in verse 8 to the day of the Lord, that we will become blameless before him. But then in chapter 15, towards the end of the book, he expands on how the death of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the rock upon which our future holds. And so, in other words, if you deny the resurrection, there is a domino effect that occurs. To deny the resurrection is to deny a central tenet of the gospel. And if you take away the resurrection, you're left with no hope and no future, just like we saw in verse 19. So I want to I bring to you a statement that I hope that I can explain to you as we go along. It might not make much sense now, but that's okay. That's the purpose of preaching, right? To clear things up, okay? It says this, if Paul's goal is to bring true of the church, then the ultimate experience of this is the resurrection of the believer. A fullness of worship is what we all desire. And when we are resurrected, when we come face to face with our creator in Christ, we will experience what we truly long for. And this is what the resurrection points towards. How we have full hope and true worship is through the gospel. So let me show you, let me show you, let me show you, let me show you 1 through 11. So read along with me. I'm in the CSB this morning. It says this. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I pass on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have died. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Paul begins his argument in verse 1 for the resurrection by making something very clear that is already known to them. Remember, he's writing two brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is the gospel. Paul takes the time here to remind them to make clear one essential truth, the most important truth, that the gospel in its purest form is that Christ died, Christ was buried, and that he, was risen, that he has risen according to the scriptures. And this is evidenced by Jesus' physical death, physical burial, and physical resurrection, as well as his physical appearance to many people. I'm highlighting physical because his body matters. Paul says that it is the gospel that he preached. It is the gospel that he received. It is the gospel that saves us. And with Paul, I think it's imperative that we understand what the gospel is. Because if we get the gospel wrong, we have no leg to stand on. And this word gospel is the evangelion. Paul uses it over and over in his letters. And this word at, at its root has uh, the understanding of good news in the face of terrible news. For, for news to be good, there has to be bad news, correct? Like when you get a good report at the doctor, it's because maybe you got a bad report before. And so here is the danger point for a lot of people in this room right now. Many people in this room have heard the gospel and so what you're about to do is I'm about to explain the gospel, okay? And you're about to just go, I've heard this before. This applies to my uh, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, those, pe those people over there that need the gospel, right? This has no bearing. I, I believe that. I walked the aisle. did all that. I want to implore with you, believer and non, I want you to hear what the gospel is here this morning. Because the gospel is good news because it meets our deepest, most infinite need. Paul says it is by the gospel that you are being saved, meaning it is something that is continually happening. When my child was born, they didn't walk out of the womb. There was things that they learn along the way. It's a lot like when we're reborn. There are things that we learn as believers. So at one point, when you are reborn, you are in the kingdom. You are a child of God. But there are things that you are being saved to. Well, the Bible would call this sanctification, is what the Bible would call this. Putting off sin and putting on the new self. Being made in the image of your creator. That's an important term there because our most infinite need is to be, to be restored back to a proper relationship with God. You know the story? In the, human, in the garden, humans were created with two things, a proper position before God and a proper uh, purpose before God. This position before God is one of worship. It just begs of who, who he is. He's creator. He created all things. Therefore, we worship him. It's in who God is that we worship him. But God in his goodness has actually revealed a way that we could live as humans to flourish our purpose. And that is to obey him and to love him and to give glory back to him. 
So we have a purpose that God has given us, but we also have a position before God of worship. But here's the problem. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were perfectly aligned in purpose and position. And when sin entered the world, both of these things were distorted. Both of them. So now what do we do? Our purpose aligns with ourselves. We seek inwardly what we want. Our position is lined with what? Worshiping lesser things. We didn't stop worshiping. We're just worshiping the wrong stuff. And so sin enters the world, and what happens? Distortions happen. And through the scripture, we see sin manifests itself through a failure of proper position and proper purpose. And we worship other things in the place of God. We reject God. We pursue a purpose contrary to how God has designed. In essence, sin is a distorted worship. Turning from God to something else. I love what Lewis, C.S. Lewis says here. He says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And is this not what the prophet Jeremiah is saying in Jeremiah 2.13? He says, for my people have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. We abandon our God and make other things gods that cannot withhold what we're searching for. Our sinful actions have consequences. We have forsaken our creator, rejected his purpose, turned our worship to lesser things. We are accountable and guilty before a holy, infinite God. And this, this is why Paul is so adamant about correcting the actions of the Corinthian people. Why do you think Paul is saying, stop having sex with people outside of the marriage covenant? It's because it's going against the purpose and the design in which God has intended, and it's causing a distortion of their worship. And so Paul says, how can our position, our purpose, and relationship be restored? And he says this, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It is upon this very statement that Christianity stands apart. What other God, full of righteousness, full of glory, full of holiness, would step down into this world to take upon a death, to take upon a sin burden that he had no involvement in? It's, you know, I could really go fire. There's two ways I could go here, right? Fire and brimstone. Let's talk about your sin, sin, sin. Or I could talk about this right here, which I love this. The true measure of our need for the gospel is determined by what God had to do in order to rescue us. Think about that. What did God have to do in order to rescue us? Sent the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, to die a terrible death, spilling his blood for you. And when you receive the gospel, what are you doing? 
What happens in your life? Your purpose and your position changes. And this is why Paul says being saved. It's being formed into the image of something else. You're not just simply saved from something. You're saved towards something else. You're saved from eternal punishment, yes, but you're saved for eternal worship. And so when you think about these things, when you consider these things, doesn't it make no sense when we distill the gospel down to just, you're forgiven? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought something that the world had never seen before. He brought in the first stage of the coming kingdom, a kingdom that will heal all things and restore the world. I want you to think about the first words that Jesus said coming into his ministry. What did he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom of God is at hand? I think it could be evidenced by what Jesus did in his ministry, right? When Jesus was on earth, who did he move towards? He moved towards those people who were broken, who were deaf, who were sick, who were unclean, who were sinful. And what happened when Jesus moved towards them? Restoration. Restoration. The kingdom of God is Jesus in the flesh. It's coming here to restore. And when we're operating in the kingdom of God, we're extensions of that kingdom to push restoration to the world and push to the person that can heal. And so the resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but they have a hope from the future. This is the power of the resurrection, complete life change, paradigm-shifting stuff. And this just isn't hypothetical or theoretical. That's why I talked about the physical body. In, Paul, in verses 5 through 7, Paul tells to go ask these guys, these, you know, these guys, hey, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? There's 500 of them said that, that, that saw him. Some of them are dead, but hey, go ask them. You want to believe? Go ask. And he ends this section with a personal testimony, how this gospel changed not just his mind, but who he was. It didn't just change the way he thought, it changed his whole being. I am what I am, he says. This grace, this gospel, this message is what he preached. And at the center of this message is the resurrection. And so when you continue on in verses 12 through 19... I want you to read this with me. Because what are the lo- what's the logical end game of denying the resurrection? It says, if Christ is proclaimed as re- raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he has raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep and creep and creep and creep and if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So what is the logical end game? What, you've played Jenga, right? What happens when you pull the wood block from out of the, resu- the gospel story? What if you pull the resurrection wood block out? What happens? It all falls. 
The logical end game of denying the resurrection is several things that Paul lays out here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time because I think it's pretty clear. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised. Okay, we, like we're on the same, I know it's early, but like, duh, right? If there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ isn't rising from the dead, all right? If Christ has not been raised, what happens? Our preaching and our faith is in vain, is empty. This word means uh, it's empty of advantage or benefit. It gives this word picture of, of working in a field, putting your sweat and work into it, knowing no fruit, no harvest is coming. That's the picture there. So without the resurrection, your preaching, your evangelism, your faith are empty, useless, meaningless work. Again, we're here for no reason. If Christ has not been raised, not only is our faith and preaching in vain, but hey, we're breaking the ninth command. We're liars. We're, we're testifying about something that never happened. And if Christ has not been raised, the penalty of your sin remains. Those who have died before us are still dead, and we should be a pitied people. Paul's point is very, very clear here. If you take the resurrection off the table, our faith comes crumbling to the ground. There is no reason for hope. No resurrection means empty evangelism, useless faith, false preaching, the dead face judgment. You are still in your sins, and guess what? To put the cherry on top, you're a pitiful person. So what happens because Christ is raised? And this is where Paul ends. I'm going to read verses uh, 20 through 28 follow along with me. It says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Christ has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead, dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then uh, comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. Amen. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may all, uh, be all in all. So I want you to notice a couple of things about these verses. What, this verse, what these passages, what this passage points to, points to is something that I believe is so undertaught in church. It's pointing to the doctrine of consummation. What happens when all this is over? Okay, we have this idea as Christians, when we die, we're going to be floating on a heaven, or floating up to heaven on a cloud forever, right? But the end of all things is not us enjoying heaven, going up to heaven, but the end of all things is heaven down to us. The restoration of all things. So I want, you to, I want you to think through what Paul's trying to say here. Paul is revealing an order, 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 the end and restoration of all things. And one of the things that God does from the very beginning is bring 
order from chaos. When you read Genesis 1, what do you read? You read a repetition. That is on purpose. God spoke, this happened. God spoke, this happened. God spoke, this happened. What's, what's going? There's, there's chaos here. God speaks and order follows. What do you see in Genesis 2? You see the same thing. You see God get a bunch of dust, right? Form it, breathe life into it, and it's order. It's humans. And so what Paul is saying is that God's plan to restore the world from chaos back to order has a sequence because sin has entered the world. And this sequence finds its meaning in the word first fruits. It's a big term. It says it twice, verse 20, verse 23, calls Christ the first fruits of those who have died. And then in verse 23, Christ the first fruits. He, he's, he's hearkening back to a metaphor taken from the Old Testament. I need you to follow along with me here. Because the original hearer would have understood this word. And they would have, they would have understood the fullness of its meaning. The first fruit was the first part of the crop offered in thanksgiving to God. It was the very best of what they had, the first of the harvest, and they were commanded to give this to God as an offering. Side note, how you should steward is not from the back end of your budget. You should give God the first because what this is recognizing is what? God provided their harvest. God provided their crop. And then it says, hey, 50 days later, you are to do this again. You are, to, you are to give another offering 50 days after this first fruit. And so the metaphor that Paul is, provides is a link between our fate and the fate of Christ. So this is where I need you to follow along. Put your thinking caps on for just a second, okay? Think about the history of Jesus' death was going on in the Jewish calendar at that time? Well, Jesus was arrested on the weekend of Passover, correct? And this command in the Old Testament was the first fruits were to be offered on the Sabbath of the Passover weekend. And Jesus resurrected on Sunday. And so as the Jewish community was giving their first fruit offering, the Son of God was raising from the death. He was being raised to life as the first fruit of the dead. But I want you to follow along 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. What happens? Acts 2. Acts 2. Pentecost. The Spirit of God is poured out on the people of God. The second offering of the Spirit now comes. And what Paul actually says in, in Romans 8.23 is what? That the Spirit is the first fruit. We have the first fruit of the Spirit. We, us. And so this movement of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' resurrection power, invaded the hearts of his people. And so what this first fruit means is there's a sequence to the resurrection. We have a God that has risen from the grave, and we will follow suit in that. 
So Jesus is the first fruit of the dead, meaning his resurrection is our resurrection. His fate is our fate. An Old Testament first fruit essentially meant, hey, there's more where that, more where that, more where that, more where that. That's what that means. And you could say the same thing about Jesus' resurrection, because if Jesus resurrects, the hope for you resurrects is as sure as Christ raising from the dead. In the rest of this passage, this is exactly what Paul is saying. The order, the sequence begins with Christ. In his resurrection, he is bringing a reversal of the chaos that sin brought in. You see, death came from Adam. Life comes from Christ. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this. He says there's a nice symmetry to this, that Christ is first in a long line of those who will leave the cemeteries. I love that. And then he goes on to say, death initially came by a man, and resurrection from death came by a man. Everybody dies in Adam, everybody comes alive in Christ, but we have to wait our turn. There's that order, there's that sequence. Christ is first, then those with him at his coming. The grand consummation when, after crushing his opposition, he hands over the kingdom to the God, the Father. He won't let up until the last enemy is down and the very last enemy is down. Man, Paul is giving us the story of the great reversal. This is the story that every Disney movie rips off. You understand? Go watch every... I'm watching uh, Raya, the new with the dragon one. They're just ripping off the biblical story. There was perfect peace. Then there's a curse that comes in, and they have to guard it, and then they have to destroy it, and then there's this restoration that happens in the community that goes on together. There, boom, biblical storyline. Disney just rips off the biblical storyline over and over and over. And so what's interesting is how Paul ends here, right? He says that I can face every I can face death every day because death will be destroyed. He through what he did in his ministry with imprisonments, the beatings, the persecutions because of the resurrection, because of what Jesus done. And, and I want you to try to think about this. Imagine your mind, you can even close your eyes for a second. Imagine what new heaven, new earth will be like. Not in the sense of what you get, which is incredible, but we will all have one world view. <gasps> incredible, right? We will all have one world view. It will not be divided. And that world view will be God is king. God is king. There will be no division, and our world will be worshiping in one direction, under one God. It is the resurrection that ultimately begins this succession of events, and guys, it is coming. And Paul ends here with a verse that we love to take out of context, verse 32. He says, uh, verse 32 and 33, he says, if, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's not about people that are around you that are watching rated R movies. What that verse is about is about people that are denying the resurrection. And Paul just laid out, what happens when you deny the resurrection? A lot of bad stuff. So as we close this morning, here's what I want to do, okay? Some of us, a lot of us have heard a sermon on the resurrection many times. Every Easter, right? And some of you 
claim Christ, believe the gospel, but much, much like our friends here, there are ways that you intellectually believe in the resurrection, but you are functionally denying it in the way that you live. What do I mean by that? Remember that crisis of hope that we talked about in the beginning? This is something that plagues your life. You've heard the gospel, 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 but you would categorize your life as full of fear, your faith as empty, and your walk, uh, walk with Christ as weak. So here's what I want to do. I want to consider three truths of the resurrection and how these relate to us functionally denying these truths and how they practically uh, play out in our lives. The first one is the resurrection confirms that Jesus paid the full penalty of your sin. The risen Christ brings complete payment of your sin, completely paying the debt that you owe, past, present, and future. Jesus became a curse on our behalf. The giant burden of your sin was placed upon Jesus. He was crushed for your iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Our sin is gone. It is done. But here is how you functionally deny that. Because a lot of people walk into the church with the belief that you're saved by grace, but I'm kept by my works. And we functionally deny the resurrection when we place Jesus back in the grave, because when we place him back in the grave, you're still in your sins. Some of you believe in the gospel of self-salvation. See, what our American culture teaches us is that if we pull, if we work hard enough, if we pull our bootstraps hard enough, what happens? We're up. We're up on our feet. And what happens when we blend that with Christianity? Because Christianity tells you the opposite, that you don't even have any bootstraps to pull yourself up from. And so when we think about the gospel, a lot of people, people are struggling with their sin because they believe that is their their works that continues to sanctify them. You are saved by how much you do. You are kept in the faith by keeping the rules. Let me ask you a question. If God has sent his son to die for you, don't you think that his son will sustain you? And some of you walk in here so guilty, so shame-filled, because you're placing your faith in your own goodness. And the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. It proves that your sin is paid for and cast away. And secondly, the resurrection grounds our hope in an unshakable kingdom. Guys, we live in a time where it is normal, normal to be full of anxiety, full of anger, full of anger, and we live in a world that gives us endless ways, endless reasons to fear, endless reasons to be angry, endless reasons to worry. And the culture's answer for healing is to put your faith in a worldview system that promises progression. Guys, if you want the world to be better, just vote for this guy. If you want to feel more happiness, just be more successful.
You see, this promise comes with this utopian outcome. And what we do, we functionally deny the resurrection when we ground our hope in the kingdoms of this world. And what we are saying to God is that there are other systems that are equal to his. And here's the problem. We swim in a world full of false kingdoms. Politics promises power. Sex promises fulfillment. Money promises happiness. These are kingdoms that we place our hope in for security, identity, and meaning. And these kingdoms promise progression, but they always underdeliver. Every politician, every human, every human, every human, every, every promotion, every sexual encounter, so many of us are, are, are fearful and worrisome because our hope is in the wrong kingdom and none of it lives up to the hype. And here's what the resurrection promises, is that there is a kingdom that is here, that is coming, that will not fade, and will live up to the hype. It will not be thwarted, and it cannot be stopped. And guess what? You're not voting the leader in. And lastly, the resurrection points to a day when death ends and eternal worship begins. And here we have the future promise of what is to come. I want you to think about some of the things that we've said so far. We've been created to worship. We have been created by God for him to be our Lord and us to be his people. And what did we do? We rejected him, right? We rejected worship, worship, and we, instead of being fruitful and multiplying worshipers, we were and multiplying death bringers. And ever since our exile from that space of, of the presence of, of God and man, perfect, we have been distorting God's design. We worship other gods. And what did our God do? He brought life to us. He pursued us. He promises restoration. He sent the promised Messiah to die for us, to crush death. And Jesus rises from the dead to validate his death. And so when we are created in God's likeness, are restored back to him, our end goal is worship. And God's end is eternal worship. Think about this. He springs forth a kingdom of life, invites people back into this space of worship in his presence, prepping us for a time when we will be in the presence of God for eternity. Let me, let me tell you this. If you don't like worship, you're going to hate heaven. Because heaven is eternal worship. And here's, here's the reality. In this life, just like Paul, we're going to face beasts we're going to, we don't know if it's literal, it doesn't matter. We're going to face beasts. We are in the overlap of a kingdom that is here and a kingdom that is coming. We have seen the lightning, but we are waiting for the thunder, so to speak. Paul can face death because he knows that death has been defeated. And the question for you is, do you? Do you recognize what Christ has done on the cross, not just forgiveness, but resurrection? Because here's the end in Revelation 5, 11 through 13. Look at, listen, the resurrection begins us on a trajectory of eternal worship. 
He says, I looked around and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, what we worship this morning, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea, that's, that's hearkening back to Genesis 1, all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is our future. And because of the resurrection, that is a reality N.T. Wright says, if the road to true humanity is true worship, the end and goal of God's renewed humanity is, of course, resurrection. I love that. As we close here, one of my favorite stories, uh, book, movie, whatever you want to go, I'm not going to be that guy, uh, is Lord of the Rings, okay? Um, because it was written and filled with biblical allusions, and there's this point, if you know the story, uh, one of the main characters is a guy named Gandalf. And uh, he has an appearance of death. He actually goes down into the depths of a pit. And it, he has the appearance of death. And after this, there was no hope in the story. But later in the story, spoiler alert, he comes back. And there's this great line where one of the other main characters, Sam, says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he asks this question, is everything sad going to become untrue? And he says, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Friends, a great shadow has departed. And everything that is sad will not just be in the past, but will be untrue. There will be a day with no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. In Revelation 21, John says, quoting God, he says, God himself will be with him as their God, and we will be his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is resurrection power. This is what Jesus has done for us. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what battles you're facing. I don't know what things that are causing you to be anxious or worrisome or depressed. But I know that we have a God that has conquered death. And there will be a day when death will be no more. Would you believe in him today? Believe and follow him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. How rich it is. 
God, I'm thankful that you are a God that did not leave us stranded. That you did not leave us in our sin. There's so many things, so many worldviews, so many kingdoms that, that we're tempted to trust in that have false promises that underdeliver, but your kingdom, which is open to all, it never will fade. It never will shrink. God, I'm so thankful for the gospel in which our sins have been paid for in full and just which was validated by Jesus raising from the dead. God, I pray that our lives would be reoriented to our position and purpose before you. And I pray as we sing this last song that our voices would be loud because we were created to worship and worship we shall do. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.